Hi, Jesuitical listeners. This is Olga here in the studio by herself. Uh, just wanted to let you guys know we experienced some technical difficulties. So if it's your first time listening, you really have nothing to compare it to. So just listen regardless. Um, but if you want to get a better sense of how we sound, listen to a previous episode. Last week, we interviewed Father James Martin. And this week, we've got a great episode with Simka Fisher. So stay tuned. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a new podcast from the perpetually young, increasingly hip, and mostly lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I am Ashley McKinless, and I am joined by Olga Segura. Hey guys. And Zach Prasciutti. I'm back. Welcome back. You're filling in for Zach Davis, who is still in China. Still in China. Zach, come back. We miss you. What are you doing? Oh, thanks a lot. (laughs) I mean, we're excited you're here, but like, we miss Zach. He's 13 hours ahead of us, so we came in like... 12, yeah. You yeah. can't even talk to him. Yeah. but And he's where? He is in China. Well, he was in Beijing. Now he's in some small village um, shooting a short doc with our film guide, Jeremy Zippel. Um, so that's something to look forward to. But we are happy to have Jesuit Zach back. Zach with an H. <laughs> Zach P. I'm happy to be here. P something. <laughs> um, what's on tap, Zach? Well, we have this very delicious monastic Belgian beer that was generously sent to us by Stephen Grant. Yes, Stephen um, Grant. He we he sent these a couple of weeks ago and we had we had a few of them back then, but he gave us so many that we're having round two. So So hint hint, anybody out there want to send things this way? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know where to send it. Yes. Cheers. Cheers. Today we'll be talking with Simka Fisher. She is a wife, mother of 10, and author of the book, The Sinner's Guide to Natural Family Planning. We'll be chatting with her about her America article, I Thought Good Catholics Didn't Need Therapy, Then I Went, where she discusses the tension that exists between Catholicism and just discussing mental health issues. Two things that are not very easy for a lot of people to talk about, so... Yeah, so we actually talked to Simka earlier this morning without Zach, um, and it was a great discussion. But I want to do a disclosure here. We are not mental health professionals, so um, we're talking about why people might need or want to see a professional. And after that, we've got Consolations and Desolations, where we tell you where we did or didn't find God this week. But first, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. First, some good news. The <laughs> relic of St. John Bosco has been recovered. We A couple weeks ago, we mentioned it had been stolen from the church outside of Turin, um, and it was found in a uh, teapot. <laughs> um, <laughs> A 42-year-old Italian man had stolen it, not because he wanted the brain of John Bosco, but he thought the uh, reliquary that it was in, which was gold-plated, was valuable. Um, But he had not gone around to selling the gold, so thankfully Bosco is safe in his cathedral. Great. I'm sure Everyone Next, we have some Pope Francis news. Uh, in a recent homily, he told parents to stop pretending to be adolescents and, and to instead help young people see the blessing of growing into adulthood. Yeah, when I first saw this story, I was kind of like not really interested, but then actually jumping into it and hearing what Pope Francis says, it's super encouraging, especially because he acknowledges that teenagers are at a time where they don't want to be treated like children, but they're also not adults, and that adults themselves actually have to be involved and let them know that, you know, 
growing older is okay. You know, youthfulness is not the ultimate sign of success, which I think is really great because I think, you know, your 20s are going to be great. Your 30s are going to be great. But sometimes teenagers don't think that, you know, and it's great that Pope Francis is emphasizing this message, you know. Yeah, no, I've actually found that in whatever decade I get into, I'm just like, oh, they're just like teenagers, which is probably not a good thing. <laughs> like, we should be maturing a little bit. And I think that is a sign or a part of American culture where we do valorize youth to such a degree that, like, it's now a joke to, like, adult, be adulting. Like, oh, I just, like, did my laundry. <laughs> adulting. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> and I'm the first one to be guilty of this. Like, I, my, I love when my mom does my laundry <laughs> <laughs> so on to more pope francis news and just kind of proving to zach davis that the women can handle sports talk we brought a <laughs> pope seeks culture of encounter during meeting with nfl legends yeah so pope francis a known lover of football took time to meet some people from uh football's less intelligent stepbrother american football <laughs> <laughs> Someone gonna challenge me on that one, Zach? You wanna? <laughs> I agree. But <laughs> okay, good. Moving on. So Pope Francis was very generous and gave a very positive spin on American football, saying that it's a place where we can develop a culture of encounter. Um, I don't know if he's watched football, but <laughs> these encounters involve concussions. <laughs> maybe yeah. not what we should be encouraging, but. You know, Zach's not here, so I can say that without any pushback. <laughs> well, I kind of agree with Pope Francis. I have friends who played football in college, and they loved it. They loved the solidarity. They loved the fact that they got to meet people from different races, from different cities across the United States. And they loved that it was a physical sport. They felt that it really disciplined them and helped them. You know, we were talking about adulting. A lot of these kids felt that it helped them become better adults, that they wouldn't have been as disciplined as they are now without it. Oh, I mean, I'm not against sports by any means. I think I think real football is a beautiful thing. <laughs> wow, real <laughs> no, football. I'm, 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 I'm just uh, being hyperbolic. I watch football. <laughs> I think I'm going to take up football. <laughs> Wait, can, are Jesuits? Can Jesuits play football? American well, we football? We can always start a team. In more serious news out of uh, college, a college student from the University of Michigan um, wrote an article for America about her father, who's an Iraqi Christian and was just recently detained by immigration officials. Uh, he has been in the country since he was four years old, but recently the Trump administration has been cracking down on the Chaldean Christian population, um, many of whom are in Michigan. Uh, so her father was actually in court today, um, Wednesday, June 20th. 21st, uh, and the judge kind of put a stay on any action until the 27th. So we're waiting on more news from this. Um, but it's really it's a heartbreaking case. Her her dad has been here for a very long time. He did commit a felony offense early on in his time here, but he went to jail, paid for his crime, um, and since then has raised four kids, started a small business, and was just picked up by ICE officials uh, on. A couple Sundays ago, as the family was preparing to go to mass, as a Christian and a person who does, he speaks English. He doesn't speak Arabic. He, she says, her father sending him back to Iraq is basically a death sentence because he would be targeted right. um, as and would face what she calls genocide, and which 
the American government has said what ISIS is, is doing in Iraq is genocide. So to send families back to that situation is unconscionable. So we'll be praying for her family and all the other families facing this. Absolutely. On to some other legal news. Uh, Jeronimo Genez, the former officer in Minnesota who shot Philando Castile, was acquitted of all charges last week. Uh, last year, on July 16th, he pulled over Castile, who was in a car with his girlfriend, Diamond Reynolds, and Diamond's four-year-old daughter. The reason for pulling him over was that his brake lights were out. So he, you know, if you and the dash cam footage was released this week as well um, after the trial. And if you watch the video... The exchange is really polite. He pulls him over, tells him, your brake lights are out. Can you, do you have your license and registration? And it appears that Philando hands it over. And then he says, sir, I have a firearm on me. And then immediately it becomes very tense. And within, I think, seconds or minutes, the officer shoots him seven times. And then from that moment, Diamond Reynolds is live streaming this on Facebook. So we watch as he pretty much, he's bleeding to death um, on Facebook Live. So it's once again sparked the national debate that we've been following for years about police violence and police targeting African-Americans in America. So it's very, yeah, it's, it's. These videos I find really hard to watch. Yeah. Do you think, should we watch them? That's actually a question I started reflecting on uh, early. I was studying in St. Louis uh, during the uh, Ferguson uh, situation. And it was just every night on the news over and over again, we are watching the same things over and over again. And I, I don't really know the a answer to that, Ashley, but there actually, I think, is something a little unhealthy about the repetition of of such incidents that it, it, it kind of gets ingrained in in our minds and our, in our consciousness. And there, I think there's a level of that. We kind of get used to it. Like, Oh, this is another one of those incidences. So I'll just turn it off because actually I know how this ends. Right. I, I know what happens. That's also not healthy. Yeah. I think in a way it forces people who don't want to acknowledge that there is an implicit bias that exists in various institutions in this country to kind of see concrete evidence that there is this bias but at the same time, it is very unhealthy and very traumatic for people of color in this country, especially black Americans, to constantly see people who look like their fathers, who look like their brothers or their mothers, to just see time and time again these people being murdered on film, on social media, and then there's no conviction. Like, it's taken to trial. We see these acquittals, and I think it wears on them, you know, and it, for them it is not healthy, you know, and it's, it's a trauma that they have to continue to relive. And it only reinforces, you know, the ongoing struggle that that people of color are facing. Yeah. And I think it forces not just white Americans to acknowledge that this bias exists, but it also forces other communities of color because this officer was not it's not the usual a white police officer who shot a black man. It's a Latino police officer who shot this black man. And you saw how quickly he reacted. And that is a bias that exists within other communities of color. There is an ingrained sense of anti-blackness that leads many individuals to believe that this guy is inherently dangerous. Archbishop Hebda of Minneapolis St. Paul released a statement this week. I ask all Catholics and all who will worship with us this weekend to pray in particular for amending of divisions along lines of race, religion, and national origin that all too often find expression in violence, hatred, prejudice, and mistrust. So these words are definitely necessary at this time.
Okay, we are now joined by Simka Fisher. She is a Catholic writer and recently wrote a piece for America titled, I Thought Good Catholics Didn't Need Therapy, Then I Went. Uh, Welcome, Simka. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you. Um, So I really love this piece. um, And I'm wondering if you could just start out by telling us why you had some initial misgivings about therapy and mindfulness. Yeah, I think it probably went beyond misgivings, <laughs> unfortunately. I'm, you know, I'm 42 years old. I probably could have been seeing a therapist from the time I was maybe 10 years old, and it took me just a few decades. So <laughs> I think it's something that's pretty common among Catholics. We have this impression, you know, we read so many stories of saints who had terrible trials and struggles that they overcame basically just by praying and going to confession and receiving the sacraments and trusting God. And according to the stories, that's basically all that it took. And I felt and a lot of people also feel that that's really all that it should take. And that if you're still struggling in your life, it's because you're spiritually inadequate. And (laughs) I think people don't even necessarily realize that they feel this way, but it's a very pervasive idea among serious Catholics that God will give us everything that we need. And that if we just focus all of our efforts on um, spiritual improvement, specifically overtly spiritual improvement, then that's all that we need. And if And if we look elsewhere, then it's showing a lack of trust in God. So you mentioned you're 42 now. So at what age exactly did you first start going to therapy? Goodness, let's see. It's been a little bit over a year. So I, uh, I I come from a serious Catholic family, and our family had started going to therapy by the time I was 10 as a whole family. Um, And so... I, I I never I it was interesting for me to see see that there was this struggle because it was it was not a part um of my upbringing. So what what was it in your life that started to um kind of break down uh this this barrier that was in your that you had set up between being a good Catholic and getting um professional help? Yeah, I don't think it was necessarily something that my parents taught me. It's not that they didn't want to help me or anything like that, although that does exist in some families. I mean, I I know families where they are actually taught that it would be a betrayal of the family to ask for any kind of help, and you're showing that you don't respect your parents if you go talk to some stranger about what your parents did to you or something like that. So there's that, too. Uh, That was not not my family. Um, in, In my family, and I think it's also sort of a generational thing, because a few decades ago, um, a lot of people felt that going to therapy was for people who were really, really messed up, that you had to be barely functional and that, um, you know, you have to be like a, a kleptomaniac or have split personality or hardly be able to get out of bed or something like that before you should resort to seeing a therapist. And I think that's that's more of a generational thing. Now, it's more common for people to understand that, I mean, we have physical therapists, we have specialists in every kind of field of medicine, and we also have people who specialize in helping people with their psychological and emotional difficulties, which everybody experiences at one time or another. You talk about um, how Catholics often see mental health struggles as spiritual failures. Where do you think yeah. that comes from? Is it is it rooted in scripture? Is it part of the culture? Uh, like why, where does that come from? There are some people who try to replace religion with therapy. They try and um, they, they, they think, well, I don't need God. I'm going to love myself and I'm going to put myself at the center of my concerns. And serving other people and worshiping God and sacrificing myself are all unhealthy behaviors. And what I've learned from my therapist is that I'm the most important person in the world. <laughs> I mean, I think we've all met people who have learned that lesson from therapy. So it's not completely unreasonable for religious people to be a little bit skeptical of therapy because a lot of, it's 
really mostly pop psychology that that promotes these ideas, these um, very kind of selfish, shallow ideas, but they're very popular because they're very attractive. You know, you say, well, I'm going to be healthy and I'm just going to say no to everybody all the time and take care of myself. So you can understand why people who have the crucifix at the center of our lives don't see that it's very Catholic to behave that way because it's not, you know? So it's an understandable prejudice, but it's not an accurate prejudice because... Um, you know, what I said in my article was that what I learn in therapy is going to be in service of my faith. I mean, that's the basic idea is that it's not, it's not two parts of your life that are warring against each other, but they're supposed to sort of dovetail with each other. That's really interesting because I had a kind of the opposite journey of you where I, I started going to therapy and like when I was 10 with my family and then all the way through the end of high school. And by the end, it, it did leave me just feeling kind of like empty because all my therapist did was affirm me. And at some point I needed someone to be like, no, Ashley, like it's not healthy to be chasing boys who don't like you. And so I kind of had this backlash where I was like, I need to go to confession <laughs> and, oh. and talk to a priest about this because I'm not getting, I'm not getting the feedback I need. Um, and it, it came from a place of love. I think my therapist might've liked me a little too much. Um, and she was a nice yeah. Catholic woman, um, but kind of became too too wrapped up in her role, just protecting my <laughs> fragile ego. And uh, didn't yeah, really... and, that's a, and that's a real danger. I mean, yeah. it's not. It's not. I think some people can. They're you know, a lot of people are just looking for somebody to listen to them uncritically, and they really enjoy being able to talk about themselves and being you know, aff- as you said, affirmed in everything that they do. And Catholicism is not going to affirm you in everything that you do. You know, Jesus didn't come to affirm us; he came to die for us. So, <laughs> I mean. I think that if your therapist isn't challenging you and if your therapist isn't asking you asking you to look hard at yourself and to answer questions that you don't want to answer, then it's probably not the place for you. Either you don't need to be there at all or you need to find a different therapist or you just need to integrate more Catholicism into the way that you approach life, as you said, by, by going to confession. I mean, it's certainly not a replacement for religion. It's supposed to augment religion. It's supposed to make you hope. What I experienced was trying so very, very hard to be a good Catholic. Catholic and just white knuckle my way through it. But, I mean, I, I was so when I was in college, I was so depressed. I should have been hospitalized. I was barely functional, <laughs> I, and I thought that it was you know I thought they were all spiritual problems, and I just needed to be a better Catholic, and that I, and then I would feel better. And you know, you, you can't pray away chemical imbalances. That's not that's not a thing most of the time. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, there's such a thing as miracles, but most of the time, being able to be healed from your depression or work with your depression at least and um, getting past your anxiety or learning how to work with your anxiety are things that make you more capable of spiritual things that you need to do. Like, I mean, you know, like if you're so depressed that you can't get up off the floor, how are you going to get into the confessional? So in the past year, what has the support been for you from other Catholics or from your own parish? Has, Has that been there for you? Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been overwhelmingly positive. I think the thing that I heard the most from anybody was just, um, thank you so much for being open about this. I think there was just a big sense of relief that people were willing to come out and say, this is something that's completely legitimate for a Catholic to do, and it doesn't mean that I've suddenly gone off the deep end and I'm not, you know, I'm not becoming a Buddhist or something like that. <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> Yeah, we we ran a survey last month, sort of, we asked our readers if their faith community had done enough to support them while they were experiencing depression and and or anxiety. And over 50% of them 
said that they had not and they were kind of wishing that their communities had done more and that there had been better outreach by their parishes. So it's hard because I mean our our, our parishes are stretched so thin. I sometimes feel like we expect our parishes to do absolutely everything for us. Um, I think this is something that lay people really need to take over rather than expecting there to be some kind of institutional. Um, I don't know. I, it, it probably varies a lot from parish to parish, but I think that um, if you are a Catholic and you have benefited from therapy, be willing to talk about it with your friends. If you see, you know, a mom who's struggling with postpartum depression or something like that. It's great to bring them a casserole, <laughs> and it's great to uh, for if there's you know a cry room at, at church or something like that. But really, the main thing that people need is to feel like they're being understood by each other. I think people can be very very isolated, um, and especially when they're struggling. I mean, that can really distort your your view of reality. So I think that. Um, it, it, it can be very healing and affirming. Boy, I don't want to kick my own butt for saying stuff like that. It's so validating. But, but feeling like we're not alone is just, it's so, it's so, it, there's, there's nothing like it. There's no replacement for that. So our final question, which we, for all our guests, if you can canonize anyone, Catholic or non-Catholic, living or dead, who would it be? If I could canonize anyone? Yes. Mm, that's a good <laughs> I would probably have to say uh, my friend, my friend Mary Geringer, who is um, a friend of the family for a long time. And when you come in the room, like she's just been waiting for you to come into the room. Oh, here you are. <laughs> That's the impression that she gives you when you when you come in. She couldn't be more delighted to see you and is so glad that you're here and just can't wait to see what you're going to contribute to her life. That's the that's the even when she doesn't say anything, that's just her attitude toward people. And I feel like that's the most Christ like thing I've ever seen in my life. And, and, and that is what it means to be a saint is to be Christ like. So she's still alive and probably not listening. So I, I won't, she won't be too embarrassed. <laughs> That's great. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Simka. Um, and where can people find your work? I have a website. It's at simkafisher.com, S-I-M-C-H-A, fisher.com. And uh, I also write for the Catholic Weekly, which is a diocesan newspaper in Sydney, Australia. And I am the author of The Sinner's Guide to Natural Family Planning, which is available on, um, it's published from Our Sunday Visitor, and it is on Amazon. Great. And you can find the article we talked about in this episode at americamagazine.org. Uh, thank you so much, Simka. Thank you. For some listener feedback, uh, we had a Twitter poll this week asking about Pope Francis's new cross. Uh, so usually we ask for adverbs, but we wanted some adjectives or phrases to describe this cross. So just to put it in your minds, it's very simple. Uh, there's no uh, corpus on it, as our Jesuit formator would say. <laughs> it's just like a simple wooden cross with what I think look like some bones <laughs> on it. Yeah, it's, um... it's it's a little out there. Um, so we asked people to describe this cross. Uh, Sarah Neville said, young, hip, and lay. Wait, what? <laughs> Which I appreciated. Uh, Archbishop Mark Coleridge uh, 
the most uh, fascinating prelate on Twitter said he's from Brisbane, Australia, and you should follow him. But he said, not quite right. Postmodern pastiche? Question mark. <laughs> uh, Nicholas Sawicki, our very own <laughs> special assistant to the president of America Media, said money back guaranteed? Question mark. <laughs> I think the next one is my favorite. Trevor yeah. writes, practical, prudential, plebeian. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds like Pope Francis. Yeah. <laughs> From Michael O'Loughlin, our national correspondent, work in progress, question mark. There's a lot of question marks. I, I think People no one don't know what to think. No they one, don't want to yeah, insult yeah, yeah. Pope Francis. They don't Francis. want to offend Pope Francis, so they're all like, it's ugly, question mark. <laughs> And finally, this I think Barb is actually a fan. She says, simple, sturdy, and unadorned. That's a perfect Pope Francis description right there. Thank yeah. you, Barb. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. All right, Zach, what do you have? I have a desolation. <gasps> I was I uh, was walking back to uh, the Jesuit community a couple nights ago um, after dinner, and it was it was relatively uh, later in the evening. And as I was walking back, I was struck by a group of homeless uh, people that were uh, sleeping on the side of the uh, street. And they had this little can out in front um, of, of where they were sleeping next to the sidewalk asking for money and a sign. And I went over to read the sign and I was going to put some money um, in the in the can. But what I, I was struck by was when I went over to the can and took a look at the people, the sleeping, it was a a guy who was visibly my age sleeping with his two daughters who were, were very, very young. And it was just very jarring for me to see young kids sleeping on the streets, you know, in New York city. Right. I mean, in my mind, the greatest city in the world, it's um, such a, a rich place in many um, aspects of its, its culture. And you have two young children sleeping on the streets. And when I got back to the Jesuit community and I was in my room, I just, I couldn't stop getting that image out of, out of my mind. And then it leaves the question like, what, where is God in, in the midst of this wealth, in the midst of this privilege, in the midst of me going back to my very privileged space in my Jesuit community and in my, in my room? That makes a good transition to my desolation, which is kind of weird. So like I, Went to the Coney Island Mermaid Parade on Saturday, which is something I've done for the past few years. My sister has done it for the past seven years. It's just very fun. You dress up like a mermaid or other sea creature and go to Coney Island and march in a parade. And I was like thinking about, okay, like how can I turn this into a constellation? <laughs> I'm sorry. I no, can't it's hold fine. back. I mean, I'm just picturing the mermaids and no, the dancing. Like, I wish I was there. That's yeah, why I'm laughing. You I would wish I was love there. it. And so I was like, Okay, like, how can I make this a constellation? And then I couldn't. I was like, I, it was just, it was just fun. Like, I can't, like, somehow we've got into this. And then I was thinking about like a couple, a couple episodes ago. My constellation was this pop up party in Brooklyn where I was like drinking with my friends and run DMC. And then this weekend I was drinking with mermaids and having so much fun. I was like, I felt like guilty and um, like 
is this really is this really what God wants me to be doing? Like, am am I being a good Catholic by like dancing on the beach? Um, I don't know, but and it also there is it tied into our conversation with Simka. She the article she wrote about going to therapy. There was this one quote in it that really jumped out to me, and she said, "How do you thank God for God's goodness when feeling good makes you feel guilty?" And I was like, "Yeah, wow." <laughs> Um, so yeah, that was, it was, it was in this process of trying to like think of a consolation that thinking about what was really a happy weekend was kind of desolating. Cause I was like, how do I, how do I justify having such a great time and such a good privileged life when there are children sleeping on the street of New York? Yeah, I, I can have similar experience of that, especially in hanging with friends and having a good time. I mean, I'm not a dancing mermaid, but um, but this obviously this event brought you joy, right? Yeah. But don't let the evil spirit rob you of your joy, right? That somehow the evil spirit comes in and pricks you with this great uh, event that you're having and and saying, well, look at all these other people in the world. They're all suffering, which is very true. Um, but still, there's this great gift in your life of joy and dancing. And I guess the spirit even sends us mermaids. It's amazing. <laughs> all right. What do you have, Olga? So this started off as a desolation. Um, during our meeting that we always have before an episode, um, we were kind of talking this out. Um, and at America, there have been a lot of new faces, a lot of new interns. Um, and also our O'Hare fellows are leaving. So I had a moment oh. in, in the kitchen Oh. either last week or early this week where one of the interns was there and I didn't know her name and I, I was just struck by like oh my god there are so many new people starting here and then friendships that I've built like people are leaving this includes our producer Wyatt Massey who I'm very very sad about that he's leaving you know along with all the other O'Hare fellows because I felt like I developed these friendships with these no, people you can't just give us people for a year and then rip them away exactly i'm like why why would god do this to me this is why it's easier to not be nice to anyone and not be open because it's too hard you know um but after our interview with simka the article as ashley was mentioning she has a lot of fantastic quotes and one of them is christ teaches us that he is present in every living person but he can be awfully hard to see so i was thinking to myself okay God put these people in my life for a reason and it's okay that they're leaving. Like you still built these fantastic bonds um, and they will, will still be a part of your life because that's what God does, you know? And that's why Facebook exists. Exactly. <laughs> so Facebook is of God? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So that, that's my as consolation Facebook. As long as it Facebook. connects us to Wyatt. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Who doesn't want to be access to Wyatt? <laughs> so yeah, I ended up being consoled after all. Good. Good place to end. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, yeah. We're saying good. Oh, Speaking babe. of terrible oh, goodbyes. Oh, <laughs> there we go. I was kind of, I was shocked to be invited back for a second time. People don't usually invite me back a second time. I mean, they do an interview with me and it's like, yeah, good. Zach, honestly, it's we been were, real. It's we been were, good. You, we were desperate. You were the only one who responded to our email. <laughs> That's really what I it came thought down that to. might be the way it is. Yes. You're always welcome thank back. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Say roll credits. Roll credits, Ashley. <laughs> Jesuitical is brought to you by America Media and produced by Wyatt Massey and Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Jesuit formation provided by Eric Sundrup, SJ. Adult supervision provided by Carrie Weber. Production help by Anna Marchese. Our logo is by Sean Tripoli. Adverbs by Jake Bernard. 
You can subscribe to Jesuitical on iTunes or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at AmericaMedia.org. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Bye.